Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, June 12th, 2023. All right, so last week was our first ever mailbag podcast. I think it went well, and we look forward to doing them on a regular basis, so be sure to send those questions in. Interestingly, in the beginning of May, I got an email from one of our listeners, Ishani, who asked me the following. Hi there, I'm a listener of the podcast from London, and I find it highly informative. I've placenta preview at the moment, 23 weeks, and listened to your podcast on this topic, which was really helpful and reassuring. You mentioned that placenta previa that resolves needs to be checked for a condition called vasa previa. There isn't a lot of information I've been able to find in this topic, and I wondered whether a podcast could be made for this. This is an IVF pregnancy, and with placenta previa, I understand the risk of vasa previa is higher than in the normal population, from a lot of Googling. I gather there are generally two types of vasa previa as well, and then the type which results from placenta previa resolving. It would be amazing to have some authoritative information on this topic, though, if possible. My husband and I have been listening to your podcast through this pregnancy, and thank you for all the information you share, which has helped us ask questions slash be informed in our own treatment. Many thanks, Ishani. Well, first of all, Ishani, thank you for the awesome email. Detailed, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. As it turns out, just a few days before this email came to me, Andre Rebarber and I recorded a podcast on Vasa Previa. Totally true. So while this podcast was not recorded specifically in response to Shani's question, it does highlight the importance of the topic of Vasa Previa. So thank you, Shani, for the question. I hope you and all of our listeners enjoy today's podcast on Vasa Previa, the critical importance of diagnosis, and of course, I wish you the best with your ongoing pregnancy. All right, reminder for all of you listening on Apple or Spotify, I would really appreciate it if you could rate this podcast, preferably with five stars. Please do leave some comments if you're on Apple. To send in your own questions for the mailbag, like Ishani did, you can either email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com or you can go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com and click on the link that says, send us your questions. Thanks for listening. See y'all next week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Andre, Dr. Rebarber, the great Dr. Rebarber, welcome back to the podcast. How goes it? Good morning. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while since we podcasted, and uh, we are in we are in different but I offices. Do see you every day. <laughs> yes, yes. As I've said multiple times to many people, I have a wife and I have a life partner, and that's you. So, <laughs> but but today we're 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 far away. You're in New Jersey. I'm in New York. We're, we're over the phone. We're not face to face. So so be it. That's how the schedule gods made it. That's how it's going to be. We can never be at the same location at the same time for safety of the practice. For, <laughs> for security reasons, you know? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. So we're, we, we are secure. The Secret Service has you in an undisclosed location just in case, you know, I, I get mugged in the street today. Cool. Like so the president and the vice president. Exactly. Well, it's more like you're the president and I'm like, I don't know, the secretary of agriculture or something like that. I don't think I, I really... Kind of the other way around. Okay. All good. Um, <laughs> All good anyway. indeed. All good. So I, I picked the topic for today, which is Vesa Previa, which is, it, it's somewhat of an esoteric topic, meaning it's not really relevant to a lot of people or to most people in their lifetime or in pregnancy. 
But I think it's something that a lot of people don't know about, and it's really important. And this is true for patients, for doctors. It just it just gets overlooked for some reason, but it's it's a big one. And this is something to know that you are very interested in. You've done research on this. We've done research on this. And I think that it's worthwhile to sort of explain what it is and help people through this so they sort of understand it and get it and maybe find out if they should be screened for it. So yeah, can, can you just explain broadly to our listeners, what exactly is vasoprevia? Yeah, I mean, so it's the Latin root. Vasa means vessel and previa means low. And so it basically implies it's a low vessel. What it is, it is really a fetal blood vessel that's present in the membranes and sort of between the amnion and the chorion that covers the cervical opening or is adjacent to it. The definition sort of originally of it covering the opening of the cervix sort of predates ultrasound and ability to diagnose it prenatally. And it was recognized traditionally by either palpation during examination or visualization uh, as the cervix dilated. And it was rarely ever identified prenatally uh, because, again, ultrasound is the only way to pick it up. And there was a lot less access to good ultrasound. And then additionally, it can be quite catastrophic if it gets missed, though it is quite, quite rare. And we do know there are risk factors for people who develop this. So we sort of guide our, our focus in identifying it on patients with some risk factors. For our listeners trying to sort out like, how does a fetal blood vessel get in front of the cervix? Like where are they normally? It's it's definitely confusing in a sense. And the way I try to explain it to people is normally the baby is connected to the mother through the placenta, right? So the baby has this umbilical cord that comes out of his or her belly button, so to speak, and it travels towards the placenta. And in that umbilical cord are three blood vessels. There's two arteries, which bring blood from the baby to the placenta. And there's one vein, which brings blood from the placenta to the baby. And normally that cord sort of plunks right into the middle of the placenta. And that's it. And we've discussed in the past when the placenta itself covers the cervix, which is called the placenta previa. A lot of people have heard of that. A vasa previa is sort of two things have to happen. Number one, there has to be sort of an abnormal or unusual connection between the baby and the placenta where the cord doesn't plunk into the placenta, but it sort of plunks into the membranes to the side of the placenta. And then those blood vessels in the cord have to sort of travel along those membranes to get to the placenta. So that's sort of thing number one that has to happen, which itself, whatever. And then number two is coincidentally, that area where these blood vessels are sort of just traveling along the membranes on their own, not on the cord, has to also be in front of the cervix. There's times when it happens that it's not near the cervix, which is its own issues. But when it's in front of the cervix, it's that's what we call a vasa previa. And so again, since those things both have to happen, it isn't very common like you said, I mean, what would you guess? I mean, it's less than 1% of the time. What would you, what do you tell people sort of the, the incidents or the likelihood from scratch that someone's going to have this in pregnancy? Well, it's actually been reported as low as like one in 1,300 to one in 2,500. So it's, it's actually well rare, but just to sort of talk about the, 
there actually are three types right. of, of this. And one of the types is, as you described, with a filamentous cord insertion or marginal umbilical cord. So the umbilical cord seems to insert on an edge of the placenta and then it sends out a vessel that's near that. But there also are, you know, type two where you actually have what's called a bilobed placenta and or succinctuate lobe. So there's an extra lobe that will sometimes up instead of one plate, two plates, and then you have this membrane sort of connecting vessel that occurs within the membranes itself between them, and that happens to be over the cervix. And then the type three, more recently described, has been where you have basically an otherwise normal-looking placenta, normal insertion, but then a vessel seems to kind of boomerang out over the internal os, and and that is thought to be from a placenta previa, a placenta that was low that kind of resolved theoretically. We can go on how that happened, and leaves this sort of surface vessel behind over the cervix. So you have sort of the traditional and more common one, the type one, which everybody knows about, which is related to this filamentous cord insertion where the cord inserts into the membrane and then has to send out vessels to travel to get to the placenta, a marginal cord insertion, type two, which is the bilobed or succinctuate, and type three, which is sort of a boomerang vessel that comes out that's sort of less usual. And we can map this in with ultrasound to identify where these vessels are uh, sometimes. And so we, you know, with careful ultrasound surveillance, particularly in high-risk groups, that can help to identify which type and the type of vessel it is, whether it's an artery or a vein as well, and how many. Right. So who who would be a high-risk group then? So certain risk factors include developmental cord insertion, which is routine in prenatal care when you're doing what we call a level two anatomy scan, even a level one, quote unquote, basic anatomic survey. They should always look at the placenta and establish where the cord is inserting into the placenta, not just the fetus, but into the placenta. So it's normal that they focus on the fetus and fetal anatomy and fetal structures, but uh, from the placenta itself, it's very important to localize where it's located and the cord insertion itself. So that's one, the momentous cord insertion. And then the other issues are if you see a placenta previa or a low-lying placenta in the second trimester, either one of these names for, for that, particularly if it's near, and that's defined as covering the opening or near the opening of the cervix, that's important to then look for this condition. If you see the bilobe, their succinctriate placenta, that's also important. And then finally, for we identified and wrote up some case reports on multiple gestations and having IVF alone is also associated with this condition in vitro fertilization probably related to the fact that IVF pregnancies are at high risk for placenta previa, which then obviously results in a higher incidence of vasa previa. So these sort of five categories are probably the most common and would probably identify close to 90, 95% of cases that have vasa previa in, in one of these risk factors. When we had the podcast on placenta previa, and I, I'm talking about this because I want to differentiate it from vasa previa. So when we were talking about placenta previa, so that's where the placenta is covering the cervix. And the concern was that if the placenta is covering the cervix, either before labor or during labor, the mother can start bleeding from the placenta, sort of having a, a loose attachment or detaching from that area by the cervix. And that could be 
predominantly dangerous to the mother, but then ultimately dangerous to the baby. So we're not talking about that here because this isn't the placenta in front of the cervix. It's a fetal blood vessel in front of the cervix. So can you explain why is that dangerous and who is it particularly dangerous to the mother or the baby? It's particularly dangerous to the baby, not the mother, right. as opposed to a, a placenta previa, which has both dangerous to mother and baby. What the main concern with it is, is that when labor is about to start or if a mother breaks her water early and the sac bursts, the vessel ruptures. And if the vessel ruptures or bursts, you have fetal bleeding that's occurring through this blood vessel because it is a fetal vessel that's within the membranes on the surface, should have been on the surface of the placenta that's now in the membranes on the surface of the cervix. And so that can result in pretty rapid um, blood loss from the fetus and and high association with uh, fetal death if that were to occur. Yeah, I mean, the fetus has very little capacity to bleed, right? If if the mother's bleeding, it's not good. But, you know, as adult humans, particularly when you're pregnant, you can lose a fair amount of blood and come out completely unscathed. Or if you keep losing more blood, you can get a blood transfusion and basically come out unscathed and be okay. But a fetus's blood volume, like at full term, the total blood volume of a fetus is about the size of, I don't know, a can of soda, right? It's, it's yeah. you know, one of the small water bottles people carry around. So the baby, if he or she loses blood at a certain point, they don't have any capacity and it can, it can be lethal. And in fact, it is lethal uh, if unknown and they start bleeding. It's very hard to sort of save a baby who's already started bleeding. To do it in time is very difficult. And that's why this is such a significant condition. What, what is like the mortality? Like if someone has a vasoprevia, what's the likelihood the baby would start bleeding and die? Well, if it's undiagnosed and you're basically waiting, you diagnose it in labor itself, it's actually pretty high because again, patients break the water early or a doctor breaks the water with a what's called an amnia hook and that itself can result in rapid exsanguination. So in the pre-ultrasound diagnostic era, the association was in the 80-90% range as far as mortality rate. It dropped with fetal monitoring in labor to in the 50-60% range because of the fact that if it were to happen and you happen to be on the labor floor being monitored, there's a rapid drop in heart rate and an emergency C-section can be performed if somebody's lucky enough to have that while they're actually in, in labor and being monitored. But it's a pretty high because it, it happens so rapidly. And in general, vaginal bleeding is maternal blood Usually, this is one of the most unique cases where the bleeding that is occurring vaginally is not maternal and it's fetal blood. Uh, and then you were going to say in the era of ultrasound, what is it now, the mortality? Oh, in the era of ultrasound now, with prenatal diagnosis, and, and, and we have over 100 cases with vasoprevia, 120 or so, um, we only had one twin case in which she went into preterm labor is suspected to have um, had that happen. Uh, knowing that she had it, she just couldn't get to the hospital in time. And there was a preterm birth at around 30 weeks or so. But otherwise, you know, only one less problem. So it's going to be statistically in our series under 1%. Most of, of the data suggests it's going to be pretty low, under a couple of percent, if you can diagnose it prenatally, because we admit patients 
earlier and particularly in high-risk groups and deliver them earlier to avoid the spontaneous onset of preterm labor or rupture of membranes. Yeah, I mean, labor starts. that's one of the biggest sort of lessons that we go over with patients if they are diagnosed with vasa previa, because you know you can Google it and find anything, and it's not necessarily wrong. It's just sort of the context of what are we talking about. So again, I tell people it's undiagnosed. If someone just has a vasa previa, has no idea they have it, and they show up in labor, their water breaks. You know, you're talking fifty percent plus mortality to the baby. The baby's going to die. Like horrible. It's like there's so it's so unusual to have a condition that has such high mortality for a full term baby. But if we know about it in advance. It's never zero, but it's really, it's really close to zero. And I tell them again, less than 1%. And predominantly because our goal is essentially to deliver the baby by C-section before the mom goes into labor. And we'll talk about exactly how we do that and when we do it. And there's, you know, some nuances in that and some disagreement, but that's the principle. If you know about it, the chance that it's going to end horribly is exceedingly low. And if you don't know about it, the chance it's going to end horribly is exceedingly high, which is why it's so critical that we know about it. So how do we find out? How do we diagnose it? Yeah, so I mean, ultrasound is the standard two-dimensional ultrasound with specific technique called color flow that identifies the vessels is the standard. 3D ultrasound can help, but it's not necessarily required. The number one thing is a high index of suspicion, primarily looking at risk factors that we talked about can be very helpful. And then really in those patients with risk factors, particularly routinely looking at the cervical length and then measuring above the cervix, any vessel that you see near that area and their distance to the opening of the cervix, it'd be very helpful and likely to be able to identify the sensitivity or the ability to pick this up exceeds 90, 95% uh, in centers that are more skilled to do this, like in our prenatal diagnostic unit, it's over 99% in our ability to diagnose this. And, and we've been screening for vasoprevia now for probably since its inception in 2005 based on risk factors. And that's why we wrote two series on screening based on risk factors and identifying it. In general, ultrasound, everybody should have a really good high resolution ultrasound at uh, 18 to 20 weeks. And uh, during that time frame, look at where the placenta is located and image the lower uterine segment in the cervix. And that's can, this can be done abdominally or vaginally and just make sure there are no fetal vessels in that area. You just put this color flow Doppler on and that's it. But again, particularly in risk factors, you should be looking at this and the best way to diagnose it is transvaginally. Yeah, I think that's an important point that it, you can screen for it and look sort of abdominally because most ultrasounds are gonna start abdominally. Not everyone is gonna have a transvaginal ultrasound. In some units, they do it routinely. Some units only based on certain risk factors or findings. And again, there's pluses and minuses to both strategies. But ultimately, I think the first thing you said is the most important thing is that there has to be an index of suspicion for it. Meaning the person who's doing the ultrasound has to know that this condition exists and what are the risk factors for it. And because of that, I need to look. So for example, if someone has a placenta previa that then moved out of the way, you know, it is no longer placenta previa. It's a pretty strong risk factor for having a vasoprevia. The person who's doing the ultrasound and sort of has seen this happen over time needs to have the index of suspicion and say, you know what, I got to be certain that there's not a vasoprevia there 
ideally vaginally, unless they can be certain abdominally, though, that's, that's tough to do, and then check. And I think that if you, because if you don't look, you won't diagnose it. And if you look, like you said, and you know what you're doing, you're going to diagnose it. And since that is literally the, the difference between life and death for the baby, it's a huge, huge factor that the person doing the ultrasound needs to know about vasoprevia and who needs to be screened for it. Yeah. And I mean, again, the, the key is also just getting it right as far as the diagnosis too, because you can scare people. There are, in the differential diagnosis, there are what we call false positives because there are vessels in that area. There could be maternal vessels, what we call cervical uterine vessels. So they're not vasoprevia, they're not a fetal vessel. One of the ways to differentiate those two is something using called pulsed wave Doppler. And Doppler actually will look at and measure a rate of which the blood is flowing. And often you, if you get a fetal heart rate, particularly in a fetal artery, that would, that is pathomonic or diagnostic because the fetal heart rate is much more rapid than the mother's heart rate. So that's one way you can differentiate it from maternal vessels. Uh, the other is you can get what's called a cord presentation. So the umbilical cord could be near the opening of the cervix within the sac, but not on the membrane that often moves. So there are things that can create false positive results and actually scare people when this is not the diagnosis. So if there's suspicion of it, but it's a place that isn't exactly sure, doesn't often pick it up, sending it to a tertiary care center that has a lot more experience with this is, is important to rule this out and create a management plan that optimizes outcome. But there are false positives as well with ultrasound as with every technology. And MRI doesn't really add anything to the diagnostic value of this particular condition, though there are some doctors that send for that, but that's generally not something that is really that helpful. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we're looking for it, either to screen for it or someone has it or to map it out and to see how it's progressing, you know, we're generally going to do vaginal ultrasound, transvaginal ultrasound, because you can really see that area that what you call the internal cervical os, which is basically the opening of the cervix on the inside, meaning from the, the inside of the uterus towards the cervix, the, the most inner portion of the cervix and see, is there a blood vessel there or close to there or not? We have the ability to sort of use color flow so we can map out vessels and then we can sort of see what direction the blood is going. And then we also have the ability to do 3D imaging to really map it all out and see, you know, is this going left? Is it going right? Is it, you know, going left and then hooking upwards? Because you can't always do that in your traditional two-dimensional imaging and really get a sense and map it out. Because like you said, it doesn't even always have to be covering the cervix as long as it's near the cervix. And we, different people define what does near mean. Uh, we usually do it within two centimeters. Some people have a, a sort of a wider target zone around the cervix, but it's it's advanced ultrasound. It's it's actually pretty simple if you know how to do it, but not everyone knows how to do it because it's not something that people do every day, vaginal ultrasound with color and 3D and all this stuff. So going somewhere that does a lot of this is important. And again, as the patient, how would you know if you need this? You know, if you have a twin pregnancy, if you used to have a placenta previa and you no longer have a placenta previa, if someone told you you have a bilobed or two lobes to your placenta, or maybe someone told you that you have this term velamentous cord insertion, maybe ask and say, hey, did you check if I have a vasa previa or not? And if they say, oh yeah, we checked, we did ABCD, it's probably fine. If they said, huh, what's that? Uh, you may want to get a referral to somewhere else. Right, and actually, it all, just recently, the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine combined with the Society of Internal Fetal Medicine, American Logic Society, 
we all put up sort of st part of the statement on standardizing ultrasound and looking at the in the mid trimester 18 to 22 week ultrasound examination it's this is now about seven eight years old but they suggested in the document that the evaluation of the placental appearance location site of the cord insertion is part of this examination and ruling out vasa previa in the setting of a placenta previa in the mid trimester should be part of the standard evaluation which is great because we sort of have been advocates of screening for this and certainly at least based on risk factors routinely given the catastrophic nature of it the one of the first people that sort of pioneered a lot of this work is a guy by the name of Yinka Olesi, who's actually up at Harvard, and we've worked together for a lot of years on, on, a, on a lot of these cases, but he had worked with the Vesa Previa Foundation and uh, put a whole series together and sort of brought to light a lot of this often missed and fairly easily diagnostic event, but again, it often was not looked at and, uh, and often missed. And so uh, finally, about six, seven years ago, they, they made it standard that this should be looked at and it's part of a standard scan. So if we're doing this and we diagnose it, right? We say you have a vasoprevia, it strong looks like a vasoprevia. What do we do at that point? So I, I always tell people this is the best thing that can happen to you. And they kind of are shocked. And I tell them, well, whatever it was going to be, it was going to be. But the fact that we diagnosed it tells us that we basically have really good management strategies now that can help to give over 99% out, good outcome and fetal survival with good uh, prenatal care and early delivery. So we tend to somewhere between 32, 34 weeks admit people to the hospital and then give them steroids up the lung mature and then deliver somewhere between 35 to 37 weeks when we make this diagnosis. So doing an early delivery by C-section prior to the onset of labor, even though you're delivering a preterm infant and has a significantly improved um, uh, survival. So that's the what most people are doing. Again, this is not what we call evidence-based. There are no you know, randomized controlled trials on this. Most of this is through retrospective data, but that seems to be what most people feel is probably uh, reasonable and something so rare because we're never going to be able to do randomized studies to identify what's the best type of uh, treatment for this population. The other issue is there's also a lot of disagreement on actually the diagnosis when it's not sitting exactly on the cervix but near the cervix where you see a fetal vessel. In our uh, series and our publications, we used any vessel, fetal vessel that's within two centimeters of the internal opening. Some series and centers advocate any fetal vessel that's within five centimeters of that and so to recommend this management and delivery. So there is some variability on the diagnosis, how close is too close. And there is some ranges of when people will deliver patients and how early, probably because of the fact that some are sitting exactly over the cervix, some are near the cervix, so some doctors might want to give the baby a little more time for development. So that's why I gave some ranges. But yeah. early delivery is the, is the key. Yeah, I mean, everyone's going to recommend two things, a, a cesarean instead of a vaginal birth and delivering early before labor. And how to do that exactly, usually it's going to fall somewhere between 34 and 37 weeks. 
potentially earlier if, you know, there's preterm labor or twins or, you know, other sort of risk factors are delivering early. But I'd say most it's going to be somewhere in that 34 to 37 week range. And again, the exact, you know, where that's going to land depends on a lot of variables, but expect it to be preterm, uh, under 37 weeks is preterm, and it's going to be a cesarean. And that strategy, which is, again, different from center to center, different from hospital to hospital, different from patient to patient, even like in our practice, we individualize it to the exact timing, but they seem to work. And then what about, so that's what we do at the end of pregnancy. So let's say we're diagnosing this at 20 weeks of pregnancy, give or take, and we're talking about delivery at somewhere 34 to 37 weeks. What do we do between 20 weeks and 34 weeks? Is it routine prenatal care or is there some sort of enhanced prenatal care or more cautious prenatal care? Like what do we do differently if someone has this diagnosis? The recommendation if they have a diagnosis by SMFM is to come back somewhere between 28 to 32 weeks to get another ultrasound once you diagnose it at 20 weeks. And and basically that's it. And then plan delivery afterwards. We are a little more cautious in our group and we've actually seen patients serially every two to three weeks to measure the length of their cervix as a predictor of risk of in, in preterm birth. We've actually, in some cases, have also added fetal fibronectin testing to predict the likelihood of preterm birth. And just to be super cautious with our patients, partially because some of our patients travel from long distances and are far away, and we're trying to identify who's at greatest risk that might need earlier hospitalization. And so we've done a lot more serial surveillance and monitoring. We check growth at intervals of four to six weeks. And then usually we've admitted them around 34 weeks, delivered around 35 to 36 weeks. Some patients we've admitted is at least 32, depending on the distance they have to travel, the length of their cervix, their obstetrical history. So you sort of try and individualize admission based on various other risk factors for preterm birth. With multiple gestations, we are even more aggressive as far as monitoring and admission. And so we tend to monitor these patients, probably admit them around 32 and deliver around 33, 34 weeks with phase previa. Right. That's just because twins are more likely to go into labor early than right. a single exactly. And then one of the interesting things that I know that you have described in, in our series is this idea that if you have it at 20 weeks, it does not mean necessarily that you're going to have it at 34 weeks, meaning there is a potential that this can resolve, sort of like a placenta previa, that if you have it at 20 weeks, it does not mean you're going to have it at 37 weeks. And this was, I don't think it was a new concept, but it really hadn't been broadly described. So talk about that a little, like what you found in our series of patients. Well, actually, what was it was a relatively new concept, and we sort of quantified it in our series. There were actually series on vasoprevia reporting one or two cases of isolated sort of resolution of vasoprevia that the vessels seemed to move out of the way. Uh, they didn't really much focus in these prior publications, and there were really only two that mentioned this event or this concept. And so we wanted to look at, because we kept seeing as we were prospectively identifying a lot of these cases, somewhere between 16 to 20 weeks, because we tend to do earlier ultrasounds, that they would a lot of times resolve. Now, that happens with placenta previa too. And one of the mechanisms of how a placenta previa moves essentially off the cervix in a way, and there's some landmark papers that were published 
several decades ago, looking at the rate of migration over time for placenta previous, thought to be two ways. One, the placenta has what's called differential growth. It grows the more at the top than at the bottom, and the bottom part dissolves, essentially. And so the placenta is sort of an active organ that cells replication and so it tends to have what's called differential growth towards where the top is because there's more oxygen at the top of the uterus than at the lower part and additionally as the uterus stretches and grows the lower part of the uterus what you call the lower uterine segment stretches out and that stretch of the wall of the uterus itself allows whatever's implanted in one place to give, give an impression of it migrating upwards so you have this mu muscle stretching and migration of the placenta in the vasa previa, the vessel itself is not physically moving, but the muscle in the lower segment stretches. And so as the uterus grows, particularly in the third trimester, that lower uterine segment stretch gives the impression of migration of this vessel. And we looked at probably over 100 cases of vasa previa in, in our series. And this was actually Dr. Klar, who was a medical student at the time, put the data set together, if you remember, maybe. Of course. Um, and Do I remember? Basically, it was, it was <laughs> I spoke to her last week. <laughs> oh, great. So, yeah, amazing. She put this data set together, was presented at, at a national meeting, and then published in American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2019. And it really was the first series to quantify sort of resolution. And what we showed is that the earlier you identified it, the more likely it's to resolve. And our resolution was if it passed over two centimeters away from the opening. And uh, additionally, in those, uh, what the rate was, it was about 39% uh, where you had this sort of resolution of it. And it was a neat paper that we put together that she worked really hard on and it quantified the resolution and also by gestational age. Um, so the, the after about 28 weeks, if you had a vasoprevia, the likelihood of resolution was exceptionally low, particularly if you were over the cervix, it was almost zero. Whereas if you diagnosed it at 16 weeks, the resolution rate was quite high in the 60% range, particularly those that were near it, but not on it. And so again, I think, it, you know, if anybody wants to look that paper up, we do have a nice graph looking at resolution by distance and time and at, uh, at gestational diagnosis. So I think it was a novel concept to some extent, but certainly it was novel in that it, it provided people uh, some kind of statistical counseling to be able to give people as to when that would resolve. And a lot of those patients that resolved, over 50% of them ended up with vaginal deliveries and did require a C-section which was also reassuring to us that we felt we're using the right number as far as two centimeters. And we think five centimeters within five centimeters internal opening is actually pretty aggressive and you'd end up doing a lot of C-sections. So those patients who did have resolution, over 50% accomplished vaginal delivery safely with no increased risk of bleeding from those vessels. So that, that was reassuring from that, that trial as well. Yeah, and I, I found that over the years, either because of that study or just coincidentally, we've been getting more and more referrals for people who were diagnosed with Vasa previous somewhere else to either double check, you know, like a second opinion, or just for counseling about it, or even for full, you know, management uh, of pregnancy and delivery. The management of pregnancy delivery is not particularly complicated if you know it's there. You know, all OBGYNs can do a C-section you know, 34 to 37 weeks, they just have to know, to, you know, someone has to tell them someone has this to do it. 
But I found it's really interesting because some people, they come and, and we feel like they've been misdiagnosed in either direction. Either they were told they don't have it and we find out they do, which is pretty terrifying actually, or they were told they do have it and we find out they don't either because it migrated from the time it was diagnosed to us or just because we maybe have a different way of diagnosing it. And that's why it's, you know, it's also, it's an option to get a second opinion if you've been given this diagnosis or you're not sure if you have it. Because again, the person doing the ultrasound should be able to like literally point down the screen and say, there's the cervix, there's the blood vessel, and here's a ruler. <laughs> and just there, you can yeah. see how close it is. This is not, you know, if you get the right picture, it is clear as day when the blood vessel is near the cervix. You literally can just measure it. Yeah, I mean, but there are, uh, it, it can be quite challenging to differentiate maternal versus fetal vessels. It can be difficult because the fetal head becomes well applied to the cervix and it makes the vessel disappear. So you always have to make sure when you are looking for this, that the fetal head is pushed upwards so that you have a clear view of that lower segment. 3D ultrasound really makes it clear to patients when I put the 3D ultrasound that, you know, my sonographers always get upset when I walk in because they know I'm going to be there about 15 minutes, you know, <laughs> playing with the 3D. But, you know, when you create a 3D image for the patient of the lower segment and you show them the vessel, you show the opening, I think it, it crystallizes the, the vessel itself and you can really see that and you can differentiate those from maternal vessels or <clears throat> artifacts that can be created. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, good diagnosis is really important. Measuring and distance becomes relevant to planning, delivery, and or hopefully avoiding a C-section if it's migrated out of the way. And I think that's also the message that once you diagnose it, let's say in 20 weeks, you can be quite optimistic and, and oftentimes, particularly ones that are not on the cervix, uh, on the internal opening of the cervix, but near it, that those likely will move out of the way in the majority of cases. So, and that's what we tried to show with our, our, our data. And I think that's really important to serially watch it, serially monitor it. And you can see that migration and you can reassure people that it is moving out of the way and that it becomes less of a risk. And, and I think that's reassuring to people. Amazing. Andre, thanks for coming on to talk about Vasoprevia. I know it's a, one, of, one of your many passions, but this is, this is on that list. It was my, one of my uh, interests dating back to many years ago when we had a patient who I, I actually had not scanned, but we had uh, taken care of and she had an ultrasound. This was back in the 90s and and it turned out she went into labor and we did not diagnose the days of previa and so it was a very unfortunate sad event and that can be avoided if you are looking for it and focus on risk factors awesome all right well thank you very much and i'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast and i'll probably speak to you about nine more times in the next few hours <laughs> thank you for listening to the healthful woman podcast to learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.